Welcome back to Calling Shots. This is Seth Partnow. I am actually driving back from Las Vegas and Summer League uh, this week, so this is a pre-recorded episode uh, um, prior to even uh, the team my, my guest covers playing in the Summer League Championship game, so we won't know whether the Portland Trailblazers are, in fact, the 2022 uh, coveted champions of the 2022 NBA Summer League. Uh, from the Rose Garden Report, my friend Sean Hyken. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Seth, and you mentioned that we're recording this before the uh, Summer League Championship game that's taking place tomorrow. I'm not going to do it, but I actually have just spent a couple minutes looking at flights back down to Vegas just to see if it's like, because if, if it was like $200 round trip or something, I might have just been like, you know what, let me go cover a, a Blazers championship. It'll be good. It'll be good for the new site if, I, if I'm there in person to cover the Blazers second franchise ever summer league championship because they won it in 2018 and then the actual team made the conference finals the next year. That feels very much like a every time I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Given <laughs> given how 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 much everyone seems to want to get out of Vegas as quickly as possible during summer league, which I don't blame them. Having well, to- I actually did, the, there was one time that I was there for the summer league championship game, and that was in 2016 because I did what I usually do. I went out for the first like four days of summer league. And then that year, this was back when I was still covering the Bulls, and Jimmy Butler was playing on the Olympic team. And so I flew out there. I flew back out there like a week later because like around the last couple days of summer league was when the USA team was starting their training camp in Vegas. And so I was out there to cover that because Jimmy was there. And so I went to also the last the summer league championship game, and the Bulls won it that year. And Denzel Valentine who was on that summer league championship team gave one of the greatest quotes I think I've ever heard from an NBA player. And unfortunately this was probably the highlight of Denzel Valentine's career, but he hit the big shot to win the summer league championship game against the Timberwolves. And afterwards he was asked about like, how big of a deal is this? Like people say summer league doesn't really matter. And he says, anybody who says that has never won the summer league championship. (laughs) <laughs> so that's tremendous i enjoyed that and unfortunately that was the high point of denzel valentine's nba career I, that and being perhaps the quickest uh acceptance of the the qualifying offer yes, off his rookie yes. deal of any oh really yes i will take that for a year um anyway so i uh, part of the reason i wanted to have you on is you've kind of started a new endeavor uh, uh recently um as as people probably guessed covering the portland trailblazers uh you've started uh, uh, your own site called the Rose Garden Report, if I have that correct. That is correct. Uh, so, what, so first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, and then you know some of the things you've been you've been focusing on over over the last little bit. Well, I'm just kind of. It's not. I'm not really reinventing the wheel here, as far as what I'm doing. I'm basically just going to be covering the Portland Trailblazers beat on a daily basis, but doing it independently means I kind of have. Basically, I, I can basically cover it the way that I want to cover it without worrying about like, oh, I have to react to every single rumor or I have to react to every single thing that somebody says on one of the morning debate shows about whether Damian Lillard is a true you know competitor if he doesn't want to leave or wh- whatever, like any, any of that kind of stuff. So I'm basically I can go in depth. I can also just cover news stuff as it happens. But 
it, it is actually it's pretty similar to I mean there, there are a few people who have started this sort of thing in different markets covered like Derek Bodner yeah that's the one I was somebody, thinking of somebody who's been doing this for a long time in the Philly market who like he was at the athletic for a while now he's doing it independently and he's having a lot of success with that and it's also like it's similar to what James Ham is doing in Sacramento and what uh, Scott Agnes is doing in Indy and it just it's a you know, it's it, it was just kind of a, a move that I was I thought I had been thinking about making it for a while, and then a few different things happened where I was just like, "This is clearly the time to do it." And it's like at this point, I've been around this team for a long time. I've been covering this team for a long time. I think that out of the you know, you look at like the current landscape of coverage of this team. I think I can probably provide the most depth of coverage and have kind of the most institutional knowledge of what's going on with the team on a day-to-day basis. So you can go, I mean, so the Rose Garden Report dot, so it's rosegardenreport.beehive, B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com. And there's a free uh, version of the subscription where you get some of the stuff. And then there's a paid tier where you get a lot more of the stuff. So I would encourage you. It's not a ton of money. It's like I think it's six dollars a month or fifty dollars for the whole year. So I think it's I think it's pretty reasonable as far as these subscriptions go. So go do that. There's a podcast that's also called the Rose Garden Report that's free on all platforms: Apple, Spotify, all the usual places you get podcasts. So that's kind of where you know where you can go get everything at this point. So you, you mentioned the, the the landscape of coverage, and that I think that kind of ties us into um, probably the the biggest thing to get to is sort of how the direction of the franchise has seemingly changed multiple times over the last year, and some of those changes probably have made this more possible. And and um, it yes. seems from the outside that the Blazers are perhaps easier to cover. Uh, in depth now than they were at this time last year. Is that fair to say? I would not have thought. Of, I mean, I'm going to obviously. I'm going to say this as carefully as possible. I think people probably can figure out what we're kind of getting at here, Seth. But uh, I would not have even thought about trying something like this if certain people who are no longer with the organization were still with the organization, because it would have been a lot less accessible to somebody trying a you know a different type of coverage and just generally speaking i mean they, there have been a lot of different hires there was obviously that you know that change that took place in december and then uh you know they have you know joe cronin since he took over let's GM let's, made- let's start there actually because i don't think a lot of i mean he is not a name that was really known to a lot of people when he took joe? over so yeah so i think i think just knowing you know your relationship with him what you thought of him i um some of the sort of high profile hires he's made mike schmitz mm-hmm. sergio oliva um, um, you know, so I, I just like, what do you think of him? What's his sort of, what's his, uh, his background and his, his outlook? He certainly seems like someone who is a very, uh, collegial person. Well, yes, he's the, he's, he is one of the nicest and most approachable guys that I've ever met in the league. It's like a complete, just personality wise, it's a complete 180 from, uh, the person that he was replacing, but Joe, you, you can say, you can say the name. It's okay. You know, he's, he he's actually a kind of. It's kind of interesting because Joe is actually a, a you know a blaze kind of a Blazers lifer. He started in uh, 2006 as an intern under Kevin Pritchard. 
And he was just, he was like the salary cap guy. And that was kind of his role in the front office is he was just like, he wasn't really, he never really like had a big say in person. He was just kind of the guy at the office who knew the CBA better than anybody, knew the salary cap better than anybody. And then, you know, he stuck around, you know, through, you know, Rich Cho kept him on and then uh, Neil Olshay kept him on. And then he's kind of just, he just kind of has, has stuck around, A, because he's a nice guy and B, because he knows the salary cap as well as anybody. And when the changes that happened in December happened, they kind of also cleaned house of anybody who was associated with the previous regime or who was brought in. And I think he kind of ended up surviving because he wasn't a Neil Olshay hire. He was, he had kind of been there before. And so he didn't have the association of being one of his guys. And so he, and then also just like, you know, I, like I said, he's a nice guy. He's well-liked people, you know, he, you know, people in the organization got along with him. Dane had a good relationship with him. And so they just kind of kept him on as the interim GM. And I had thought like, what I had thought would happen was that he would be, you know, they made him the interim GM when they made their changes that they made in December. I had kind of thought that what would end up happening permanently was they would keep him as the general manager and have him be in charge of the day-to-day personnel, you know, player personnel, basketball ops stuff. But then that they would bring in somebody over the top of him, like as in a president of basketball operations role, Mark Eversley from the Bulls is somebody whose name I had heard at one point, Tayshaun Prince from uh, Memphis, who obviously has a relationship with Chauncey Billups. Like that's somebody that I had heard at one point was a possibility there. But I think as time went on, and maybe, you know, we'll get into some of the sales stuff later. So maybe once once Phil Knight buys the team in eight months, we will see them bring somebody else in as a president of basketball. But for right now, I think they're pretty, like, you saw all, you know, he, he had a lot of authority to make moves at the deadline and make some pretty significant moves in trading C.J. McCollum. And then he's also made some pretty significant front office hires under him. You mentioned Mike Schmitz. You mentioned Sergey Oliva. They also brought in Andre Patterson, who was an assistant GM with the Cavs. Uh, these are all hires that Joe made and that he's been given the authority to make it. You know, he has a relationship with Dame. Dame actually advocated for him to get the job permanently after the moves that he made at the deadline and, the, you know, the way that he completely tore down the roster. You know, he's somebody that, you know, Dame feels comfortable with. And so I think they're just comfortable with him as the, you know, face of the organization now. That's actually an interesting way of putting it because that was that was going to be my next question is – um, it does seem like there there are some organizations who have done kind of the thing you're talking about where they have someone run the day-to-day and then it's kind of a a name to be more of the face. Um, the the uh, prominent one to me is is, is Utah where, where uh, you know my old boss Justin Zanuck uh, is, is is runs the day-to-day but then you know Danny Ainge is sort of uh, you know the the kind of the ultimate decision maker and sort of the the, the face of that. Uh, just because he's in, in part because he's a more prominent name, more prom- more well known. Um, does 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 Joe Cronin like like to be out there in front of and do the public stuff, or is is it is would that be more just wanting to again have someone with a little bit more you know established heft behind them if if that was the kind of hire they wanted to make? I think Joe has gotten more comfortable with it as the last six or seven months has gone because I remember they did a press conference 
right after the uh, change that happened in December, where it was him. They, 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 one, one, th- one thing they've been trying to do ever since uh, ever since the uh, the, the Neil Olshay uh, got fired, and also like about a couple weeks before that happened, uh, Chris McGowan, who had been their president of basketball o- or business operations rather for a number of years, also stepped down and took a job in Detroit uh, running base- running the Tigers and the Red Wings. And they elevated Dwayne Hankins, who had been kind of his number two for a long time, and he's the new president of business ops. But uh, so under the old regime, I, 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 I guess I'm trying to like get into some of the you know organizational dynamics. But under the old regime, basically, basketball ops offices are at the practice facility out in Tualatin, and business ops offices are out in are are at the Rose Garden at the arena or Moda Center, I guess is the. Name of it. We can call. We can call it the Rose Garden. It's fine. yes, and they just never interacted with each other. And so, in the first, pre- and basically, Which, most by, of by the way, blocks, that's 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 normal. I think it is it's, normal, but it yeah. was also, but it was it was it was happening here to a degree that when, and I mean, yes, you 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 do you would like for you know basketball ops to be able to run itself independently and not have. Uh, you know, the business side completely trying to interfere with it. You you want that. But it was happening here to a degree that, let's say, when somebody filed a complaint against the president of basketball operations for 10 years of running a hostile workplace environment, people on the business side had no idea about any of it because he went out of his way to make sure that none of them were ever allowed in the building. Uh, on his side of it. That does seem extreme. That was kind of the... that That's the degree to which they were separated under the old regime. But when they had their press conference in December, um, it was Joe Cronin, Dwayne Hankins, and Chauncey Billups all up on the stage together. And that was also who was up on stage at the trade deadline after they traded C.J. McCollum and Robert Covington and Norm Powell and basically tore down the entire roster. Like, you don't usually have the president of business operations no. also on stage for that press conference. And they also, the other thing is, like, he Dwayne Hankins was also at a lot of these draft workouts that they did before the draft, which, you know, you, never, you would never see Chris McGowan in the, uh, you know, at the practice facility watching draft workouts under the old regime, because I don't think Neil would have ever let him in the building. But... They, the, the point is, they, they they're making a big show now out of all of the sides of the organization are on the same page, and every you know everybody is kind of going in the same direction, and there aren't really any more splits in how we want to do things, and that's kind of the vibe they're trying to put out under Cronin. And I think as he has grown into the job, I think, and I think he's been kind of he's gotten a lot more confidence just based on. He got through the deadline. He made big moves. The organization has enabled him to make big front office hires, and clearly Dane trusts him. And so I think now, maybe when he first took the interim job, he maybe didn't feel super comfortable being the face of the organization. But I think he's grown into that role now. Is what I'm trying to get at. That's that's interesting. This is this is sort of, um, you know, uh, that seems like the worst part of the job to me. Is doing is doing the the public facing stuff, uh-huh. um, but I guess I mean I, I, it might be different in a place like Portland than it would be in a, in a different market because as as you sort sort of alluded to, uh, like relative to other NBA markets, it's it's a little bit of a sleepy 
you know, media scene, so um, it's not like you're getting, you know, the 17 beat reporters that descend upon the Knicks and want to hammer you for everything. Um, well, you're not, if, you're, the, if you're the, if you're the president of the Knicks, you might just never give a press conference. Yeah, right? well, that's, I mean, that's... That's that's a whole other thing. That's that that is that is that's kind of in the what are we doing here kind of uh, right. kind, kind of category of things. Right, and um, I will say, and I will say, Joe has been very like from my standpoint as that beat writer. Joe has been very easy to work with. Like he, uh, like he, he will like. We're still we're still kind of you know we've only known each other for like less than a year now, so we're still kind of developing that relationship. But I would say that I have a, already have a lot better relationship with him than I ever did with uh, his predecessor. Sure. Um, let's let's talk about some of those the, some of those those front office hires. I think the the biggest name is was probably Mike Schmitz, just because yes. of of his 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 public. Um, that was a move that seemed to surprise a lot of people. Um, I think I, I think you know it, it, not in a bad way. It's just like oh wow. Um, because there still isn't a ton of precedence for people like getting hired out of the, from, out from the media into team jobs. I think it's happened more. I mean, you know, the Lee Jenkins with the Clippers, uh, um, was it Grant? Seth Hart now with the Bucks. I mean, I, mean I, I, I sort of counted as media, but like, um, but not at the same level. Uh, uh, I think it was Grant Lifman just got hired by the Hawks, I believe, uh, after covering the Warriors for a number of years. Um. So these things are starting to happen more, but it's it's still unusual, and certainly someone from as prominent a national outlet as as as, as uh, ESPN. Um, you know, how did that come about, and and what is his uh, what is his purview other than obviously being a kind of a draft guru? I am I, I haven't been able to put together the full timeline of how that came about. I'm I'm interested. I would be interested to know. And I've I've gotten to talk to Mike a little bit since he took the job. Obviously, Mike and I knew each other in passing from years going to some of these same events on the media side. We didn't know each other super well. We've started talking more since he took the job and has been around later stuff that I've been at. Uh, but I mean, I have to I have to imagine that over the 15 years that he's been doing the Draft Express stuff, whether it be on ESPN or on Yahoo or independently, he's probably had offers from teams before to come work for him for them. So I don't know what exactly led him to decide this was the job to take and this was the time to do it. But I think it was a pretty I mean, it's a frankly, it's a pretty brilliant hire just from the sense of a this guy has gone him and Gavoni have both just been going to every single one of these international events and high school events and AAU events for 15 years. And they have the best database of every single one of these prospects since they were like 12 or whatever that, and, and the other, I think the thing that makes it a brilliant hire or one of the things that I think, I think made it made make a lot of sense when they did it was not all, like teams rely on all this on their database and their information. So if you hire them, if you hire Mike Schmitz, you not only do you have that information for yourself, but you're taking it away from the other 29 teams. So it's a huge competitive advantage. And it also just here. So here's I'll, I'll give you an example of kind of where the Blazers uh, draft scouting, you know, operation was under the old regime. Joe Cronin, and he just kind of let this slip at exit interviews in April after the season ended. He, when he was talking about like the organization empowering him to make front office hires, he said that he added a second international scout 
<laughs> which means that before, under the previous general manager, they only had one international scout. And we're talking about right now a league where all three of the MVP finalists plus Luca, you could make an argument that four of the top five players in the league right now are non-Americans. And the Blazers as an organization only had one international scout. And now you have, A, you've hired more international scouts who are just going to be out there scouting, you know, Euro League or whatever. But you also have a guy in Mike Schmitz who's in your organization now who has been tracking every one of these prospects since they were kids. And so now, like, the next the next time that there is somebody like Nikola Jokic, like, I mean, th- sometimes there are, like, international prospects where everybody knows about them. Like, Luka was not a discovery or a surprise because everybody knew about Luka that he was the MVP of the EuroLeague when he was right. 19 or whatever. But... Nikola Jokic being a second, I mean, it, it's kind of an extreme example, a guy being the 41st overall pick and winning back-to-back MVPs. You can't really expect that to happen again. But most of the teams in the league, like their fan bases were like, why didn't we take Nikola Jokic in the second round? Why weren't we in on him? If you hire somebody like Meg Schmidt, who's been tracking all, all these guys since they were 12, it's more likely that whoever the next like under-the-radar guy like Jokic from one of these international leagues is you're going to be one of the teams that was in on and not one of the teams that's like, why didn't we get that guy? And I think it's not just, it's not just that, that like sort of the, there's, there's sort of a current cohort of players that, that he's, he's been scouting, but also I think more importantly, like longer term is, is the relationships that he's built up across, you know, multiple continents. So even if he's not the one, you know, probably in his current role, he's probably not the one getting on flights all the time. He at least is getting the phone call to say, "Hey, you should, you should, uh, you should take a look at this kid." Sure, totally. Yeah, that that's that's certainly part of it. Uh, and it, it also just like I like I said, it also is just a great competitive hire because this guy not only does he talk to you know scouts and agents and whoever in these overseas leagues, and also you know is at all these high school tournaments. But he was talking to front office executives in other, you know, with other teams too. And like they would be, you know, bouncing stuff off him and asking his opinion on stuff. And they would be using that information. Now other teams are not going to be able to use him right. as a sounding board for stuff because he works for one team now. So you're taking, you're helping yourself by hiring him and you're also hurting the other 29 teams. So it's for, from that standpoint, it was also just a really smart hire in that way. Sure. Um, how much do you know of, of this is, I, he, I, I consider him a friend, so I, I, maybe I can tell you something about him, but yes, I'm actually, you, I know where you're going, but yeah. I'm actually very interested in your, cause you, you know, Sergey better than I do. And I remember yeah. when they first, when they first hired him, you texted me and we were like, Sergey, Sergey's a great guy. And actually yeah. I met him in person for the first time a few days ago at summer league. And my icebreaker with him was with him was like, "Hey, I'm friends with Seth Part now. You, he's told me good things about you." And he was like, "Oh, Seth, that's my guy. I love Seth." So like, so you 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 educate me here. You tell me about Sergey Oliva because you so, know more about him. So he's so he's you know first of all one of the like this is this is this, there's a, there's a pattern developing here because uh, Sergey is one of the, the the nicer people I've, mm-hmm. I've I've interacted with, just like a a genuinely like good human being. Um, and it seems like again, if there's a word here, it's agreeable. And you mm-hmm. know, there's there's um, you can go too far along the lines of you know agreeableness. You, like if if everyone just goes along to get along, you never you you never end up like disagreeing productively. But uh, but he's someone who is 
who is uh, extremely smart. Um, one of the broader kind of ranges of experience for, for folks who don't know, he, he ran the analytics department in Philadelphia for a number of years. Um, maybe got blamed for some stuff uh, on his way out that, that maybe he shouldn't have as, as sort of the, the Brett Brown uh, era kind of came to an unfortunate close. Um, and then last year he was a, he was a bench coach with, with Utah. He was an assistant coach with Utah. He has, he has, you know, both a high level of, of technical uh, chops in terms of, of, you know, coding, programming, statistical analysis, as well as, as actual, you know, ta- uh, tactile X's and O's basketball. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty unique skill set. Um, you know, the, you know, in terms of, of that sort of range of things that the number of people in and around the league that have that, you know, it's under five. Um, uh, so, and, and then on top of that, uh, you know, another, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's Catalan. So he, uh, another person who has, you know, very strong international, uh, connections as well. Um, played overseas for a while. So he never played in the NBA, but he had a long career in, in Europe and in Spain. I didn't know that. <laughs> he doesn't seem, he doesn't seem old enough to have, to have done that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, so I think that's that, that, that's another. Um, I was like, I, fr- frankly, I was I was actually slightly surprised because I I thought that 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 he wanted to, he was very much interested in going down kind of the 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 coaching uh, route and and the job in Utah was um, you know to get him more of that experience so he could eventually go back to to Europe and and be a head coach somewhere. But I guess someone offers you an AGM job, you it's. That's a little bit hard to uh, hard to pass up. Yeah, and the guy that I'm still trying to learn a little bit more about, who I don't know at all, is Andre Patterson, who was in the Cavs front office. By the way, Sergey is not a former European. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I thought that he had previously played. I think when I was first looking up when he they hired him, I I saw something that he had played overseas that, that I guess that's not the case now I'm looking that up so that's just just, just <laughs> to correct like, that that's, that's that's surprising me I mean he is he he is tall enough that you that you right would, uh, right 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 that, that you that it's, that wouldn't it wouldn't wasn't shocking it's just like sure. how does that never come up so just um, just want to just want to correct it but you know yeah. but Andre Patterson is kind of the other guy I, I I have not actually met him in person yet but he came from the Cavs front office and he you know played briefly with the Timberwolves but you know and played overseas for a while and you know, he's. I think that the pattern that's kind of emerging here with a lot of these front office hires for the for the Blazers is that it's a lot of guy. It's a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. Where you know, you have Mike Schmitz, who's like a scouting savant, basically, and that's what he's been doing for fifteen years is just grinding and going to all these college events and AAU events and overseas events and scouting all of these draft prospects. And then you have Andre Patterson, who's a former NBA player and a former overseas player. And then you have Sergey Oliva, who has kind of more of a mathematical, analytical background. And then also, you know, I don't kind of a lower, not an, she's not an assistant GM, but just like in the front office, Asia Jones is a former WNBA player. So she kind of brings a different perspective. Joe Cronin so far has been bringing in a lot of people from who have a lot of different backgrounds than he does. And which I, I think is extremely. I think that's extremely smart. I think that's. It is, it is, and I think a difference between him and I mean, I said this when the Mike Schmitz hire happened was that under the previous GM, that would never have happened because the most important thing to the previous GM was that he was the smartest guy in the room at all times, and he would never bring in like 
Joe Cronin would probably tell you, I haven't talked to Joe about this, but Joe would tell you that Mike Schmitz knows more about draft prospects than he does. And that's why he hired him, because he wants somebody who's going to cover up your own gaps in knowledge and bring different perspectives. And even so far, they don't, they haven't fully agreed on everything. And this is, this is, uh, this will probably transition into some of the more roster related stuff that yeah. you probably want to get into here. But with that number seven overall pick, there was a little bit of disagreement in the front office. There were some people who wanted Dyson Daniels. There were some people in the front office who were very high on him and that was who they would have gone with. And then there were other people, including Mike Schmitz, who were really high on Shade and Sharp and thought he had the highest upside in the draft. And, they, you know, they, 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 there was not a full consensus on everything, which I think is what Joe Cronin wants. He wants to bring in people from different backgrounds who aren't always going to agree on everything and then kind of come up with something that everybody can go along with. And that was that was kind of how they ended up with the, with the Shade and Sharp pick, which I know Mike Schmitz was a big driver of. And that's that's healthy. Um, you know, yeah. they, 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 these are, especially in a draft, I mean, there's, there's, um, you, you never know. And so there's often good arguments for a number of different players at a spot. And, and, and as you say, it's, it's, it's the most important thing is having a culture where you can, you know, get great input from a number of different people and sort of, um, you know, the phrase we used to use is, is beat it up enough so that you everyone sort of feels even if that's not Talk their, through everything yeah even if it's not their preferred you know choice you're happy that the process was thorough and it's like all right i, I might have gone somewhere else but i'm happy with with how we got to where we got so we're right. all on the same page now and that's like that's the way it should work and that's the way good organizations work and uh bad organizations kind of work the other way where you you know um, you know, I imagine you've you heard have, this. There's, there's, one, there's one person who basically just calls all the shots and everybody else yeah. just kind of has to deal with it. Yeah. That's, that, that, that was yeah. how it was in Portland until the second. Yeah. It's like, I, I imagine you've, you've heard that there were people of different opinions as a, you know, uh, the, the, the way it's been told to you is like, this was a healthy discussion and we ended up certain place. Not yeah. as in people yeah, saying, people, oh, I want, I wanted, yeah. I wanted this guy and they went the other way and that sucks. Yeah. You know, none, none of the people in the Blazers front office that wanted Dyson Daniels are mad that they took Shade and Sharp. Like, that is what is the thing. It's not like they're trying to put that out there as, oh, well, this guy, I think this guy sucks. So yeah. I want to make it known that it wasn't my call. Like, yeah. there were just some people who liked one guy over the other. Yeah. But, and, and that and that's just kind of which is going to happen in any front office. There's a lot of smart yeah. basketball people in the room. They're not always going to agree on everything. Yeah, no, when we, I mean, when, you know, I can speak a little of my experience that like when we picked um when we picked uh Dante DiVincenzo it was you know there was a a debate between him and other players and and you know it was a group of four or five players and my preferred player in that group was Kevin Herter but it was it's like okay but like the preference wasn't strong enough that I was like irate that we took right you know, Dante DiVincenzo and even now like you know five years down the road it's not entirely clear who who was right, and it might never be, but it's just you know the draft is such that you you kind of you kind of close your eyes and throw a dart a little bit and hope it uh, hope it lands the right spot. Um, totally. So beyond the draft, because who knows what the hell Shaden Sharp's going to be at this point? Yeah. I mean, it's like the the the, uh, the 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 national man of mystery who played you know very limited amount of time at summer league before hurting his shoulder is still uh, is still a complete mystery to us. So who Jabari knows? Walker though. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's you know. Um, 
Jabari Walker is, uh, you know, our mutual friend, uh, Brian Schroeder, is a big fan of Jabari Walker. Yeah. So Sabaki Walker's kid. Yeah. I will I will defer to him on that. Um, yeah. Just again, because I don't claim to be a, a draft guy anymore. No. Um, they liked him enough that they signed him to a real NBA contract and not a two-way, so... I mean that, that that certainly shows something. Um, if you can get that way, if you can get somebody that you like enough to actually roster with a fifty seventh pick, you're doing okay. Yeah, um, especially uh, frankly, especially because there's a lot of players at that spot in the draft who yeah. are who will tell teams who kind of have something else worked out with another teams who will tell teams or their have their agent tell teams no, don't draft me, right? Because I because I want to I want to go to summer league as a free agent or I want to. I've got a better deal worked out with another team or something like that. There's mm-hmm. like at the back end of the draft when you see like certain players go undrafted, it's much more about that than it is like teams just like whiffing. Yeah. Um, um, but I, so, you know, you mentioned the big moves that they made at the deadline, you know, trading, trading away McCollum, trading away Covington, trading away Powell. Um, that seemed to be sort of setting the stage for kind of a complete you know, maybe, maybe you know the, the 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 smoke around Lillard maybe deciding it was time to do something else was was sort of gaining steam, and that seemed like a preparatory move for that. But then it also left them open to kind of do what they did, which was almost like turn right back around and completely retool around Dame. Um, I don't know how good they're going to be this year, but they're certain. I think they're a better roster this coming season than they were last year. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they're a playoff team. I think they're in a. If you told me they were, I mean, obviously the West is as deep as it's ever been, and they're not at the level of like Golden State, Phoenix, healthy Clippers, healthy Denver. But if you told me they were like a five or six seed, like I could see it. If everybody's healthy. I'm gonna this. I'm gonna push back a little bit on your assessment of what their moves at the deadline said. I don't think a total teardown with a with trading Dane was ever on the table since the front office changes in December. I think that a lot of the smoke around him last summer was real. And I think he even said that at his press conference when he signed the extension last week, that if there was ever a time that he was thinking about maybe wanting to leave, it was last summer after they lost to Denver and then they didn't really do anything that off season to get better. I think if Neil and, Olshay, and maybe hung him out to dry in the coaching search in yes. certain ways. I think if Neil Olshay was still the general manager, we would be talking about Dame asking for a trade right now because Neil would have just run it back with Dame and CJ and said it wasn't the roster and it wasn't anybody else's fault that or it wasn't his fault that anything happened. And then Dame would be looking around like, yeah, I don't know about this, but as soon as Neil got fired, the focus and this and I think this it, it kind of dovetailed with Dame missing the whole season, where, or not a whole season, but they shut him down in January and he missed a bunch of time in December and November before that with that ab injury, which had been bugging him for he had said himself like he had been kind of trying to play through it for three or four years before that. And so I think with the season starting out the way that it did, where they, you know, they came into the season with playoff expectations and then they were very much underperforming at the beginning of the year. And Dame was having the, by far the worst season of his career statistically because in part of how much pain he was in with the ab stuff. It's like you have that and then you have the GM gets fired and they have a guy who's more, let's say more open to trading certain guys than the last guy was. 
they kind of decided to, t- to just give Dame a gap year and basically treat it like the Warriors did when Steph Curry broke his hand a couple of years ago, where they told him just like, don't even worry about coming back, just get healthy and we'll be bad this year and get a good draft pick and then we'll try to be good next year. That's even at the deadline, like the whole plan that the plan was never are we going to you know t- trade CJ and you know t- you know tear everything down and then trade Dame that was not the plan the plan was we're going to give Dame this whole year off to get right from this ab surgery and we're going to completely reset the roster before that and then try to when he comes back healthy we're going to try to build something that makes a little bit more sense around him and that's why you've seen you know they bring in you look at like the profile of guys that they brought in you know jeremy grant is the kind of big wing who plays both ends of the floor that's the kind of guy that they've needed for a long time gary payton the second is a versatile you know defensive guard who is you know can play with a lot of different kinds of lineup they you know they brought different guys and they i think the roster now makes i, I agree with you that i don't know how good they're gonna be and i don't think they're a title contender by any means but the roster around Dane makes a lot more sense now than it did under the previous GM. So what, this is, I, like, I, I don't think that I ever saw anything to this effect, but there was never, like, any, like, friction between Dame and, and, and CJ McCollum, was there? No. It was just It was more just that, like, this is a, this is a tough combination to, to, put a, to put a winning team around. You know, two small, yeah. defensively challenged guards who are best with the ball in their hands. It's Yes, um, and you know, Dame and but, CJ are still very close personally. They never had any issues with each other, but Dame is a smart enough guy and knows enough about the league and knows the salary cap and knows what the Blazers roster situation that he knew that trading CJ was the only real move they would have had to make in order to make any kind of real upgrades. And there had been opportunity. I don't know how much of it I want to get into on the air, but there were opportunities that had existed in the past of players who would have been significant upgrades that who would have been like true, you know, all NBA level co-stars to Dane who, when they were trying to get traded from their specific, from their previous teams, actively told Dame, I want to come play with you. How do we make this happen? And CJ would likely have gotten it done and Neil wouldn't even consider it because CJ was his discovery and the guy that he refused to even consider trading. Neil secretly was hoping that Dame would ask for a trade so that he could build around CJ like he always wanted. It's the 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 my guys syndrome is uh, yes. is, is is real and it's 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 dangerous. Um. So, like, what do we make of 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 this 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 roster now? I mean, I think that that you you know you mentioned Jeremy Grant, uh, you Gary Payton added some defense there. At the same time, there is you know the basis of this team on some level still is kind of two small score first defensively challenged guards. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, the 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 from a roster construction standpoint, um, uh, dis- despite you know the 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 large the large new contract, like Anthony Simons is not quite the the salary cap clogging you know, partner that that McCollum was, and also obviously significantly younger with with more upside to get better. Um, that does seem like it's still starting from somewhat of a similar place. It is, and I think the two things that you mentioned 
are the two things that you would uh, that I think the people in the organization would say to push back is that a Simons is 23. So he hasn't even had his best years yet. And B that even with this new deal that he just got, where he's making a hundred million over the next four years, he is still making about $10 million a year less than CJ was making. So it's not like the two guards are taking up your entire salary cap, basically like it was under the old, set up with Dame and CJ both making basically max money and maybe only one of those guys was worth max money. So that would be how I think they would push back. The thing about Simons and this was something because like one one of the things I was I was doing while I was down in Vegas was asking different people what they thought about Simons because he really just had this one year where, you know, they shut Dame down, they trade CJ, they trade Powell, and so he got this huge opportunity to basically be the featured guy for a lot of the season once the they stopped, you know, trying to win games. This is really the first opportunity that he's had to really consistently be, you know, the featured guy. And you can, you know, you can land wherever you want to land on like whether, you know, how much of it you want to base on one year and how much of it you think is sustainable. But his usage went from 18 the previous year to 24 this year. So that's a pretty significant jump and a pretty significant amount more attempts. And he was still a 40% three point shooter. So I think they feel like he made that jump as the featured guy. And now that Dame is theoretically going to be healthy, he's going to be playing with Dame. So he's going to get even more open looks. And the other thing about this Simons thing is unlike CJ, like there were, there were people in the, in the Blazers fan base who think they didn't get enough back for CJ when in reality, like that contract and his age, like they got about as much as they were going to get back for him. If Simons is still this good and they do decide down the line, not that I think they're going to, but if they decide down the line that, you know, Simons, you know, maybe they do want to not build it all around the two small guards who aren't good defenders thing and they want to move Simons for somebody. With him on that contract, you can move him at his age. So I think it, I think it still gives them enough flexibility. If there's one weakness, I think this roster has because you know they have the two scoring guards. They have they've gotten a lot better defensively with Grant and with uh, Gary Payton, and then they also you know they still have Josh Hart, who's a good defender. You know, if Nasir Little's healthy, who's, I think they think Hart he seems like a little bit the odd man out at this point. I think he's going to be coming off the bench, is my guess, just from a size standpoint, and also because they don't have anybody else in the second unit who can be a ball handler. So I think the plan with him is probably to have him be the backup point guard or the backup guard, where he because I say I think I think just from a size standpoint, Nasir Little is going to end up being the starting three. If there's one real weakness, I think this roster has. It's that they don't really have any rim protection outside of Nurkic, and you can basically. If, since that leg injury that Nurkic had in 2019, you can basically count on Nurkic missing 15 to 20 games a year. And at that point, wait, if you don't have him, your backup center is through Eubanks. So, like, you know, I think I think if there's one area where I think they need one more guy, I think that's probably it. Sure, and maybe, and you know, maybe that's where uh, having the wealth of international scouting uh, tools at their disposal. Might might actually be able to you know coming up with a with a Daniel Tice type player sure who, yeah who most of us have never heard of and then he gets here it's like oh, he's pretty good um, that that seems like uh, that, that seems like something that that that, that could prove useful um, that's, yeah. and, that, and frankly that's that's an area where I'm surprised um, as the the economics the relative economics of the NBA and 
European basketball have changed. I mean, it used to be that um, it didn't make much sense for a guy to come be a 10th man in the NBA when he could make, you know, once we once we factor kind of tax the 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 no, the no taxes off the top, um, uh-huh. uh, the way that, that that European players get paid didn't make much sense to to come over here for to be to be in that role because you'd be taking taking an effective forty percent pay cut. I don't think that's I don't think that's true anymore given how you know the the minimum contracts have risen in the NBA and um, you know kind of the the economics of European basketball have kind of gone the other way. So I'm. Um, I remain surprised that we haven't seen a little bit more of that over the last couple of years. Sure, yeah, but but I think that's the one, the rim protection outside of Durkic, I think is the one real area of weakness. And I don't know where, like, as of right now, since they decided to give Jabari Walker their final roster spot, they have 15 guys signed under contract, so they could add somebody and they're all they're also like they're very limited financially now with what they do because they're hard capped because they use the non-taxpayer mid-level to sign gary payton so they're hard capped and they're pretty close to the number like i think they're like five or six million under the hard cap at this point sure do you think they have um do you think they have enough shooting i do i mean you've got dame you've got simon's even like you know, a guy like Gary Payton can hit a can hit an open three. He showed that in this playoff run with the Warriors. You know, Josh Hart, good shooter. Jeremy Grant is able to you know has gotten a lot better. I think as a featured you know guy, and he's going to have more open looks now. I think I think that's kind of what I think they do have that. And I think defensively they've gotten a lot. It's just, it's just I think that just they don't. I don't think when I mean, you look at like the Golden States and the Phoenixes and the Clippers if they're healthy and you know Denver. I think they're still a level below just as far as talent, but they have a lot of versatile guys now, and I think they have a lot of guys who can at least you have Dame and Simons who I think are going to be getting the bulk of the shots, and we know those guys are great shooters. But pretty much everybody else in the rotation, you can at least say you know if he gets an open three, he can knock it down. So last last kind of question about the current roster, and then I think we want to finish up talking about some of the the the, the sort of uh, franchise level machinations, which okay. uh, you you kind of hinted at earlier. Um, so Jeremy Grant is an interesting case because I think his his best role is kind of approaches what he played in Denver and mm-hmm. sort of what what Aaron Gordon is doing in Denver now. But basically, everything has seemed to be like. He personally was much more interested in the kind of role he was playing in Detroit, where being more ball in hand score, less sort of of secondary player, uh, versatile defender stuff like that. Um, this obviously going from from Detroit to, to to what looks like a substantially better team in Portland pushes him back towards that a little bit. Uh, is there any concern at all about his sort of willingness to accept more of a secondary role? That's something I actually asked him at the introductory press conference after the trade became official. And what he said was that for the first six years of his career before he got to Detroit, he wasn't the featured guy. And so he's totally comfortable playing that role. I actually, I, on the Rose Garden Report podcast, which again, you can get for free wherever pod, you ever get your podcast, usually Apple, Spotify, right after that trade happened, I did an episode with our mutual friend James Edwards from The Athletic, who is 
covered the Pistons for a long time and, you know, covered Jeremy Grant his last couple of years in Detroit. And we talked about that. And he pointed out that I, that in Detroit, Jeremy Grant was really set on being the featured guy because the guy that was kind of his competition for that spot was Kate Cunningham, who's a rookie. And he's looking around like, well, you know, why is this rookie taking shots from me? Whereas with Dame, there's a lot more of a mutual respect and more of a, you know, part of why, A, Dame really wanted Jeremy Grant. Dame pushed for him. He pushed for this trade to happen both at the deadline that, you know, when they were uh, making, you know, this, these huge changes. And then also this past couple of weeks when they got the deal done, Dame was really pushing for it. And Jeremy, when he found it, kind of figured he was going to get traded from Detroit. Portland was actively somewhere that he wanted to go because he and Dame played together last summer on the Olympic team and they got really close and they wanted to play together for a while. And so I think Jeremy knowing, you know, is coming to this team knowing that, you know, he's playing with Dame, so he's not going to be the featured guy because that's just, it's Dame's team. And I think from, from whatever, I, I, I understand where that question is coming from. And I had that question myself and I asked it to him directly, but Everything that I've gotten both from him and then from also people who have covered him and have been around him is that because of his relationship with Dame and the, the mutual respect that he and Dame have for each other, I don't think that, you know, unhappiness with his role is going to be an issue here because he actively wanted to come here knowing what the situation is going to be. No, that makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, And also, the- like, he was the featured guy on a team that was in the lottery and it's probably... As much as like we like what Detroit has done and we like the future of what they have, they're probably not going to be a playoff team for right. another year or two. And so I think, you know, he was on a team in Denver that made the conference finals. He was on playoff teams in Oklahoma City. And then he was the number one go-to scorer on a team that was one of the worst teams in the league record-wise. I think there's also a thought that he kind of got the being a 20-point-a-game scorer on a bad team stuff out of his system. And now he's kind of ready to go back to being a role player on a team that has sure. a chance to actually make the playoffs. I think that's kind of where he's at right now. Yeah. Uh, like I've, okay. I I've proven that I can be a scorer in this league, but actually winning is more fun. Yes. Like, that's yeah. kind of, that's that, kind that, of the sense. That's the sense that I've gotten both from him and from people who okay. have talked to him. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. So like complete pivot. Um, you, 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 you mentioned a name, uh, earlier in this podcast and it's sort of mm-hmm. been out there and there's been some, some real, you know, again, from, from the outside, there's been some real oddness in terms of, of, of kind of sort of the disposition of the franchise. So you're basically, you're basically openly stating that you expect Phil Knight to own the team before too long. Yes. So what's going on? So, and I wrote a big piece on this earlier this week at Rose Garden Report, which this one actually wasn't paywalled, so anybody can read it. You can go to my Twitter to find it or just go to the site. But basically, I think, uh, so the, 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 I'll, I'll try to explain that there's a ton of complicated stuff here that, you know, it's, it, I, I'm going to, I'll try, I'll try to do what I can to like hit the really important stuff that people need to know without getting too into the weeds. But basically, so Paul Allen, who had owned the team since the late 80s, he died about four years ago. And his sister, Jody, has been in charge of his estate since then. And all of his assets, the Blazers, the Seahawks, who he also owned, and then, you know, all of his various properties and real estates and super yachts and whatever else, were all in a trust. And the terms of the trust are that after he dies, everything in the trust, all of his assets have to be sold at some point in order to fund 
various charitable and philanthropic efforts of his. And so legally at some point, I, there's no, I don't think there's actually like a hard timeline, but legally at some point the Blazers literally have to be sold by the terms of the trust. And about a month ago, Woj reported, and then the team later confirmed that Phil Knight and Alan Smolinski, who's one of the minority owners of the Dodgers and is a real estate guy, and that's how he made his money, put in an offer of $2 billion for the Blazers. And the team put out a statement that said that, that Phil Knight made an offer, but it's not for sale. And then later that day, Adam Silver, because it was the same day as game one of the finals, and so Adam Silver did his press conference, you know, that he always does before game one of the finals. And he was asked about it. And he said that at some point the Blazers have to be for sale because of the terms of the trust, which, you know, you and I both have covered the league for a long time. And so you know that Adam Silver doesn't really speak off the cuff about stuff like that. And so him saying that in his press conference, instead of just saying no comment, that means I think that he is really motivated to have Phil Knight be the next owner of the Blazers. I, and that's something I've also heard behind the scenes. And then, you know, about a month later, Jody Allen puts out a statement just randomly saying the team is not for sale. It's not really in response to anything. And then a couple of days later, my, my, the, my, uh, my team is not for, for sale. Uh, t-shirt is, t-shirt is raising yeah, a yeah. lot of questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, like, and then a couple of days after that, uh, uh, the, there's a story that comes out of the New York Post where Larry Miller, who was the Blazers team president of business operations for five years and now works for Jordan Brand, gives this interview talking about how toxic Jody Allen is and how she needs to sell the team and she should take Phil Knight's offer. Like, they're really, they're starting this, and I think there's going to be more stories like this coming out in the next couple of weeks. There are going to be, a, there's going to be a push, both from Nike people and I think from the league office, because like all four of the, you know, the NBA, the NFL, all of the major sports leagues have actively been trying to get Phil Knight to buy a team for 40 years because he's one of the most powerful people in sports and the Nike is a partner with all these leagues. And so they want the, all these leagues and the commissioners and the other owners want Phil Knight to be an owner. He has never been interested until now. And I think now it's because he's in his mid eighties and Portland is where he's from. And he wants to, you know, make sure it's a local owner that's going to keep the team here forever. Like, I think like it's kind of a legacy play for him now is why he's interested in buying the Blazers. And now that he's interested in buying a team and he's in his mid eighties. So he, you know, they kind of want to get it done soon because he's, he is that old and he may not be around for much longer. I think that the league is doing everything in their power to make it happen. And then from the Jody side, yes, she legally has to sell the team at some point because of the trust, but she wants to hang on, I think, at least for another three years, because in 2025, the new TV deal is going to kick in, which is going to be even bigger than the last TV deal that caused the huge salary cap spike, because one of the streaming platforms is also going to get in, and then still they're still going to get a ton of money from ESPN and Turner. So there's going to be a lot of money coming into the league from that, and then also I think they're going to do expansion in the next couple of years with Seattle and Vegas, and so that's going to be another few billion dollars coming into the league from expansion fees. And that would be money if she was able to hang on and enough and you know long enough to get that money. That would be money that she would get to keep for herself before selling the team because with the team being sold, all the money from the sale is going to go to whatever charities Paul Allen designated that it goes to because that's in the trust. So she is motivated to hang on at least for another few years until she can cash out from the TV deal and the expansion money. 
But the league is kind of trying to speed it up because now that Phil Knight wants to buy a team, Phil Knight is 84, and so he might not be around in three years, and so they want to make sure that happens while it happens. I think... I don't know how it's going to get resolved, but I think within the next year, Phil Knight is going to be in the process of becoming the owner of the Portland Trailblazers. So there's been is 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 there any tie-in between you know you mentioned this article in the New York Post that was referring back to there's been some some allegations against Jody Allen in the past yeah. and like we don't like this is not really an appropriate form to litigate like what did or didn't happen, but. Um, were the, were those kind of allegations as part of like a preparatory thing for this, or is that, that also, uh, I guess part of why the NBA would be pushing like Phil Knight or not sell the team just because, you know, we've got enough problems with, um, overtly problematic owners, uh, in other Western conference cities sure. that we just did like, let's, let's, let's dodge that headache as well. Or is that, is that sort of something that also happened and is now being, I guess, weaponized in this in this push for Phil Knight? I think they're more than happy to, if they need to, get a lot of the stuff about her out there in order to ratchet up the public pressure on her to sell. I think they're more than happy, as you said, they're more than happy to weaponize it. But I don't think that the league and the other team owners are super psyched about there being a great, you know, a big investigation into Jody Allen's history while the Robert Sarver stuff, as you alluded to, is still going on because you kind of don't get to be that rich without having some kind of blood on your hands in some way. And so I, you, you saw some of this stuff happen a number of, however many years ago the Donald Sterling thing was. You saw a few owners. I think Cuban was one of the people that said something about this. But, like, obviously they all wanted Donald Sterling gone because they all hated him. But... I think a lot of these owners kind of realize that, like, if we're digging into people's past and we're trying to use that as a pretext to get them out, like, what's going to happen when it gets to me? Like, I don't think the league is really use. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think the league really views whatever these allegations are against Jody Allen as something that would preclude her from owning a team. But they're more than happy to use that as an excuse to be you know, to, to get this full night sale that they want to get done anyway. To happen is kind of how I would read it. That makes sense. Um, so you, so you think that that you know, however this plays out, it's it's basically done in principle, kind of yes. over the over the course of the next season. Yes, and also I'll, I'll I'll put it this way. So I mean, you and I both also know kind of how the reporting side of this stuff works too, and it kind of the way that I explained it, I think, to people when it first when the you know the, when it was first reported that Phil might made an offer, the person that reported that. Phil Knight made the offer was Woj, who was obviously the preeminent, you know, NBA insider at the biggest media outlet that covers sports. And it it kind of works the same way that trade rumors work, where all of these reporters hear about all kinds of stuff. And they maybe report like two percent of what they hear because the guys at the Woj and Shams and Chris Haynes level are only gonna actually report something publicly and go with it if it's actually far enough down the road that it's either going to happen or probably going to happen. And so Woj going with it publicly that Phil might made an offer and is going to be aggressive about buying the team says to me that it's far enough down the road that it's not going to just be something that's talked about and doesn't happen. That also makes sense. Um, 
I guess, you know, looking looking forward a, a little bit, uh, Portland has basically, certainly when before Paul Allen died, the Blazers were a team that I think was, was fairly consistent about um, outspending their market um, for, for putting a team on the floor. Um, is that something that, like, like just from a, from a not caring about anything else, if you're a fan of the Blazers, um, is that something you should, be, you should be rooting for Phil Knight to get the team because that, that's going to come back? Well, I mean, you, you're absolutely right that when Paul Allen was alive, he, he was a type of owner that he looked at the Blazers as a toy, and he was his hobby, and he just loved basketball, and he wasn't... But he sort wasn't, of Balmer-esque. Yes, he wasn't running it like a lot of these hedge fund guys who own teams now are, are running these teams where like they're trying to make money off of it. He was like, he would always pay the luxury tax. He would always, you know, back when he first bought the team in the mid, in the late eighties, when teams were still flying commercials or road games, he, they were one of the, one of the first, if not the first team to actually have their players fly on a private jet to games. You know, he paid for state-of-the-art locker rooms. He paid for state-of-the-art practice. Like, he was always just like, I love this. This is my hobby. I'm just going to spend whatever on it. I don't care if I lose money on it. That was kind of his attitude. That's changed since his he died and his sister has taken over the team. I think that with Phil Knight being in his mid-80s and having never been interested in buying a team until now... I don't think he's going to buy the Blazers to not spend money on it. And then the other thing is that his partner in the bid, who we haven't really talked about much because I don't really know that much about him yet. I'm still in the process of kind of reading up on his background. But this guy, Alan Smolinski, who is a real estate guy in L.A., who's one of the minority owners of the Dodgers. And the Dodgers are an ownership group that even when every other baseball franchise is like pulling back on how much money they're spending and you just saw this morning that Juan Soto is getting lowballed by the Nationals and is like you know you know most most baseball owners are not really spending money this Dodgers group has not been shy about spending all the money on the roster and I would think that a guy who is a part of that ownership group and is now trying to buy a team in another sport I would think and hope that he's going to have kind of the same philosophy that he has the baseball team that he is a part owner of has. So that would be just an educated guess about where that might go. Okay. Well, that seems like as, as good a spot to, uh, to leave it as any, uh, you want to, uh, you know, just let, let people know where they can, they can find your work one more time and, uh, we'll, we'll sign off from there. Yeah. So again, rosegardenreport.beehive.com, free or paid subscription. I would encourage you to sign up for the paid subscription because I think I've got some, especially now that like the busy part of the off season is done. I'm going to try to dive in and do some more kind of feature and like longer form stuff that's not so much tied to the news cycle. So I think I've got some pretty cool stuff coming for paid subscribers and then there's also the podcast, which has the same name that is free on all platforms that you can get to. I'm trying to build that up also. So just go check it all out there and then follow me on Twitter at Hyken. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's amazing that, 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 you know, you're, uh, you're in business with Beyonce. No, I'm kidding. That's a terrible. Joke. <laughs> I, 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 hopefully I'm not the first person to make that joke, but hopefully you I actually am the last. are. I've never, um, I've actually haven't heard that one yet. Yeah. Ho- hopefully I'm the last person to make that joke because it's terrible and I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> Uh, Sean Hyken, thanks a lot for joining uh, uh, me again. Um, uh, thanks, folks, for listening. Um, I will be back later in the week with more pre-recorded content before uh, live shows again last week of the month. So thanks a lot for listening. Take care.